between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast that's talking about Conan comics one issue at a time. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and today Conan infiltrates an evil cult to save a pretty lady. And oh yeah, he also fights a giant bat because, you know, Conan. Anyway, today we're looking at Conan the Barbarian issue number six from Marvel Comics. This issue sports a cover date of June 1971, but it hit the stands in March. It sold for 15 cents, and the title of the story is Devil Wings Over Shadazar. It was written by Roy Thomas, with pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Sal Buscema, and the letters were by Mike Stevens. Into the boat! Conan has arrived in Shadazar, the capital of Zamora, when he encounters two thieves, Fafnir and Black Rat. The two thieves have recently robbed a goldsmith, coming away with a goblet, a candlestick, and a dagger, each of which are made of gold. Conan, perched on a wall above them, watches for a moment as the two argue over how they're to split the booty between the two of them. Conan decides he's hurt enough and jumps down off the wall to take their ill-gotten gains for himself, dispatching the two incompetent thieves with very little effort. Booty in hand, Conan suddenly craves a flagon of wine, and so he enters a nearby tavern, immediately catching the eye of an attractive blonde woman at the bar. The woman, Jenna, approaches the young barbarian, and soon the two are engaged in conversation. As they talk, two men in the tavern begin roughhousing, and it's not long before they slam into Conan, who pushes one of them away forcefully. After getting punched in the face, Conan leaves with Jenna, who takes him to talk to her uncle, Maldiz, a blacksmith, so that he can melt down the stolen gold into the shape of a heart. With his now untraceable gold in his purse, Conan and Jenna take a walk, ending up under a palm tree outside the city. Conan takes Jenna in his arms, roughly kissing her until she pulls away. She's not that kind of girl. Well, she is that kind of girl, but she doesn't appreciate Conan's lack of experience with a woman. She doesn't want to be grabbed and wrestled into submission like a bear. Girls like a little romance, or at the very least, a dude who's a bit more tender and gentle. Besides, she tells him, the horns on his helmet bruised her forehead. She reaches up, removes the helmet from atop Conan's head, tosses it aside, and the two get to snogging. As they make out, lost in nothing but each other, a trio of red-robed men creep up from behind and crack Conan on the back of the head with a great big stick. Conan staggers, but doesn't go down. You know, being all kinds of badass and stuff. And so they hit him again, knocking him unconscious. Conan wakes alone to find that he still has his heart of gold. Heart of gold. Huh. 
I wonder if that's a metaphor for something. It's a metaphor, Daddy! Anyway, if the red-robed men who assaulted Conan didn't steal his gold, that can only mean one thing. They have taken Jenna. Conan goes to Jenna's uncle, Maldives, for help. But after describing the men to the blacksmith, Maldives declares that Jenna is lost, possibly already dead. The men, Maldives tells him, are followers of the night god who sacrifice a young girl every month to their evil lord. Well, Conan ain't gonna put up with that kind of shit, so he immediately sets off for the temple to get Jenna back. Once he arrives, Conan steals a robe and makes his way through the temple, eventually finding the red-robed fanatics gathered around a dais in a great chamber where the roof opens up to the night sky above. On the dais is the priestess, Haji, who, standing next to a glowing brazier and an altar upon which a woman is bound, calls out to the never-seen night god to accept their offering, which, of course, happens to be Jenna. Haji then rings a great bell, the tone of which is so shrill that Jenna begins to scream. Conan, too, is affected by the sonorous tone of the bell as he tries to blend in with the other red-robed men. Haji, announcing that the night god has come, places a cap over the top of the brazier, plunging the chamber into darkness. The red-robed thugs, despite the darkness, jump Conan and pull the robes from him, exposing the barbarian for who he is. Conan, struggling with his captors, calls out to Jenna, asking her if she's still alive when he hears a strange sound from above them, like the angry lapping of waves on a shore. Jenna answers that something hovers above her, flapping its great wings. It descends, she calls out, its clammy flesh touching hers. She then screams out Conan's name in terror, and the Sumerian throws off the men holding him. Conan can see nothing in the night-shrouded chamber, but as a high-pitched screech sounds above him, he starts throwing fists. Conan manages to hit the brazier, knocking it over and spilling its oil and fire onto the floor, shedding some well-needed light into the chamber once more. Light that reveals a giant bat that has taken hold of Jenna. The cultists, seeing their night god for the first time, scatter like teenagers at a house party when the cops arrive. Conan, who ain't afraid of no bat, giant, or otherwise, takes up the flaming brazier and swinging it with all his might, pops the beast in one of its eyes, blinding it. Well, in, in the one eye, anyway. The bat like pretty much every living thing, finds having an eye burnt out a bit painful, and so it tries to flee. The problem is that it still has Jenna in one of its creepy bat claws, and so Conan, grabbing up the priestess Haji, jumps onto the back of the thing as it attempts to fly away. Conan tells Haji to command the bat to land so that he and Jenna can get off the crazy thing. Stop this crazy thing! But Haji cannot. She has no control over the night god. The bat, struggling to gain some altitude due to the combined weight of three people on it, and still blinded in one eye, flies into the side of a tower, and that gives Conan an idea. Still holding the brazier, he tries to use the light to guide the thing out of the city. However, Haji pushes Conan from off the bat's back. The Sumerian falls, but manages to grab a hold of one of the thing's legs and hanging there next to Jenna, still holding the brazier, crams the small bowl of flames into the creature's mouth. Well, as you can imagine, having a mouthful of fire has to hurt, and so the bat 
falls from the sky, slamming into the ground, dead. Conan is knocked unconscious during the crash, and Haji, pissed off that an ignorant savage, her words, not mine, has killed her deity. She stands over the prone barbarian, and seeing that Conan is still alive, she pulls her dagger and crouches next to him, preparing to plunge the blade into his chest, his big, muscly barbarian pectorials. She forgot about two things, however, the flaming brazier and Jenna, who creeps up from behind and bonks Haji on the back of the head with said brazier, killing the priestess. Conan wakes, surprised that Jenna could kick so much ass, but you can't live in a town like Shatazar without knowing how to cook a few fools. The barbarian passes out once more atop the sands outside of Shatazar. He wakes with the sun, only to find that Jenna has gone and that she's taken his gold with her. As the issue ends, Conan, deciding that he's had enough of Shatazar, moves on. Enough talk! All right, so this is an original Roy Thomas story. We've had, I think, three now that are original Roy Thomas tales, and three that are in some way based upon uh, Robert E. Howard's story, but this one is not. I love the cover. Let's look at that first. And really, I have loved all of the covers so far, except for eh, issue two and three. Not a big fan of either of those, but still, four out of six ain't bad when it comes to covers. On this one, we have the giant bat basically front and center. It's holding, I guess, what's supposed to be Jenna in its claw, but they have colored Jenna's hair red on the cover. We have Conan leaping upon the bat's back holding the glowing brazier. And then we have Haji perched upon the bat's back. And she looks like she has a bit of a headache. Maybe she needs to take a bath with some Calgon or just have an ibuprofen or two. But yeah, I'm a big fan of this cover. We actually see like the rooftops of Shadazar. We're we're almost kind of looking down and we see some people on like, we see a guy on one of the rooftops holding a spear or something and other folks standing outside looking up and, oh my gosh, look at the big giant bat. So yeah, pretty cool. Now, before I start looking through the comic here with y'all, I wanted to let you know that I I bought, uh, well, I didn't buy it. I got a Kindle book recently. I had some Kindle reward points available, so I didn't have to pay anything at all to pick up this Kindle book, but it's, uh, it's called Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume one. It's from Roy Thomas. And it goes through basically the first 51 issues of the Marvel Conan run, which Roy Thomas wrote. But it gives you like a like a behind the scenes look into the making of those 51 issues. And it's something that I really wish I would have had previously when I started this whole podcast, but I have it now. So as I look through this issue, I we'll be referring to what I've read in that book in reference to this issue as we go along. And if you're interested in picking up this Kindle book yourself, there will be a link in the show notes. It is an affiliate link. So if you're going to pick up the book, use that link because then I get a little scratch when you do that. And I'm all about the scritchity scratch. So the opening splash page is really nice looking. It's, it's Conan with Shatazar, like the, the, uh, cityscape of Shatazar behind him. Roy Thomas points out in his book that 
at least in the in the Robert E. Howard stories, because they only had the rights at this point to do Conan stories based upon information or based upon stories themselves that came directly from the Robert E. Howard stories. And he never described the city in any kind of detail in any of his original stories. It may have been described later on in some of the pastiche novels and stories and whatnot, but it wasn't in the Robert E. Howard stories. And so Barry Windsor Smith had to kind of come up with his own look. And Roy was very impressed with the look he came up with for Shadazar. We meet Fafnir and Black Rat, which apparently are parodies of Fritz Lieber's famous characters, Fafrid and the Grey Mauser. I don't know if I'm pronouncing Fafrid's name correctly. I've, I've heard of these characters. I've heard of Fritz Lieber. I know that they're famous characters. Uh, I've just never read any of those books, but that's who these characters are based on. They're very incompetent. Conan manages to take both of them out with really barely flexing a muscle. In fact, one of them stabs the other one in the gut. And by one of them, I mean Black Rat stabs Fafnir in the gut because he's stabbing at Conan and Conan dodges. He ducks, he jukes, and he jives. And uh, Fafnir gets stuck right in the gut. And then Conan just basically kicks Black Rat in the head, knocks him out. There's kind of a weird moment here where it's like, Roy doesn't fully want to embrace this idea that Conan has very questionable morals. So he has this conversation with himself when he picks up the pouch of stolen goods that Fafnir and, and, and Black Rat have. And he, he almost tries to convince himself that he is allowed to keep this gold because he immediately wants to go take it back to the goldsmith. but reasons that, ah, the goldsmith is probably dead. Conan then gives thought to maybe returning the candlestick and the goblet and the dagger to whoever may have survived the goldsmith, whether the goldsmith has kids or a wife or any kind of surviving relatives, but then decides that, nah, they're probably just going to squander the gold anyway. So uh, he might as well keep it. And he even makes a, a comment at one point, uh, all this pondering makes my head spin. Maybe a flagon of wine will help me sort things out. And so he finds a nearby tavern and goes on in to partake. Within the tavern, we meet Jenna, who, according to Roy Thomas, was based on the character Bridget O'Shaughnessy from the book The Maltese Falcon, which is a book I've never read. I've, I've never seen the movie either. They don't outright say that Jenna is a prostitute. Uh, I'm assuming. Maybe because of the Comics Code Authority, or again, maybe Roy doesn't want to go that hard in one of these issues. Uh, but he does have the woman at the entrance who welcomes Conan to the tavern. She refers to the tavern as the House of Suwong, which apparently is a subtle reference to a book and a movie called The World of Susie Wong, the character of which is a prostitute. So that was Roy Thomas's way of letting readers or at least astute readers who maybe have seen the world of Susie Wong or had read the book. That's the way, that's how he lets them know that she's a prostitute. Jenna at one point mentions Aquilonia and King Numidides. And if you've listened to my episode in which I talk about the first Conan story ever published, Robert E. Howard's The Phoenix on the Sword, then you know that not only is Conan destined to become king of Aquilonia, 
he gains the title by killing King Numidides, who was apparently quite the tyrant. But what I learned reading this Roy Thomas book is that at the time that this story was to take place in the chronology of Conan, the king of Aquilonia was a guy named Villarus. Numidides hadn't taken the throne yet. We only know this, according to Roy, because it's in the Robert E. Howard Conan story, The Drums of Tumbalku. But <laughs> here's the thing. Howard died before he could finish that story, and it was later completed by L. Sprague de Camp for publication in one of the many books published by Lancer in the 60s. Why is this relevant in any way? Well, like I said, Marvel didn't have rights to include anything from any stories that were written by anyone that was not Robert E. Howard. And because L. Sprague de Camp finished this story and may have possibly been the one to add the name of this king, Villarus, they couldn't use it in this story. And so he kept with King Numidides. There's a moment here after the two dudes who are wrestling in the, in the tavern, they bump into Conan and Conan shoves one away and the guy punches Conan in the nose and, and Conan's about to kill the guy, but the other fellow that's with him kind of talks him out of it and he and Jenna end up leaving. But Conan makes a point to talk about as they're leaving the differences between living in Samaria and what is considered a civilized society here in Shadazar, because as far as he was concerned, what happened there in the tavern wasn't really civilized. Back in Samaria, you could go into a place and, and drink your freaking ale or meat or whatever, and nobody would bother you because that's just the way they rolled in Samaria. But here, apparently, there are fights and all that stuff. And while most people consider Conan, you know, he's a barbarian, he's, he's uncivilized, he's ignorant, and therefore Samaria must be full of ignorant, uncivilized barbarians. And that's how the, you know, the place is looked at upon everybody in the South, in the civilized lands. But Conan likes to point out very often that that's not really the case. Anyway, Jenna takes Conan to see her uncle, Maldiz, who talks at one point about when, when she tells him to melt down all the gold and shape it into a heart, he talks about how it may not look as good as the gold falcon that he once made, which to me was just another, it was just a throwaway line. But looking, you know, again at Roy Thomas's book, apparently that was a callback to the Maltese Falcon, who, which again, Jenna's character was based on a character from the Maltese Falcon. And here is Maldi's talking about his falcon. Maldi's falcon. The Maltese Falcon. Get it? That Roy Thomas is pretty clever. But I'm not really, I'm not really sure if Maldi's is only melting down the candlestick and the dagger and the goblet because Conan also has that bag of gold that he got from the wizard Zucala in the last issue. They, they somewhat mention it. He's got a, a pouch of gold and he is told to leave five gold pieces aside for Maldives for doing this work. So I have to assume that they also melted that down as well. But the, the gold heart that he's given does not seem big enough to be even made from a candlestick, a dagger and a goblet, much less at max 35 pieces of gold. But I like that they mention the bag of gold from the previous issue. Roy Thomas, I think, has done a fairly good job over these six issues, kind of dropping hints 
or outright mentioning stuff that happened in a previous issue. Cause then it gives the reader that, you know, sense of continuity that makes comics so freaking awesome. But Conan takes his heart of gold, which again, it's gotta be a metaphor of some sort, right? Conan is a, uh, uncivilized, ignorant barbarian who kills and is tough and he's a big warrior and all that stuff, but he's got a heart of gold because he's literally carrying it around <laughs> in this freaking issue. But they go, he, he and Jenna go out into the desert outside the, the city walls and they start making out and then she tosses his helmet aside and this will be the last time that we see his helmet. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. If you recall from the previous episode, I was complaining a bit about Conan's costume, the little fur shorts, the helmet, all that stuff. Well, I guess Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith, they agreed with me because according to the book, again, the Barbarian Life book, they wanted to get away from Conan having a, quote, fixed outfit that served as a uniform, end quote. So in this issue, they took steps to start getting rid of this, quote, unquote, uniform, and they started by getting rid of the helmet. And again, I'm, I'm happy they did. I'm, I've never been a big fan of the helmet. But there's kind of a funny moment when Jenna tells him, you know, that the horns from the helmet bruised her head. So she throws it away and she says something to the effect. Uh, uh, let me look, let me look, let me look, let me look, let me look. It makes you look like a yak anyway, which I guess is a line that came from Barry Windsor Smith. When, when he drew this page, he added a bit in the margins suggesting that as a line and Roy Thomas used it when he wrote up the dialogue. Because if you're not aware of the Marvel method of writing, which was going on at the time, it started with Stan Lee when Stan was basically writing all of the Marvel issues. He didn't have time to actually sit down and write out full scripts for, I don't know, five, six, seven. I don't know how many issues they were producing a month back then, but he didn't have time to do that. So what he would do is he'd kind of write up a quick synopsis, you know, a couple of paragraphs. He'd then give it to his artist and say, this is what I want to happen in the issue. And then the artist would draw it up, coming up with a lot of the story elements themselves. And then once the, the art was finished, Stan would go back in and add the, the dialogue and the captions. And that's what Roy was obviously doing here. Because as he was writing up the dialogue, he sees this little note in the margins of this particular page in, in, in regard to Jenna referring to Conan as looking like a yak with a helmet on. And so he, he put that in the, in the issue. I thought that was pretty neat. The red robe guys kidnap Jenna, take her back to their temple. Conan, of course, goes to rescue her because that's the kind of dude Conan is. The, the red robe dudes and their priestess worship a god that they call the night god, but we learn that the night god isn't actually a god. And the way I read it, it's not even any kind of supernatural or magical type creature. It's just a giant bat. I mean, that may be by itself an odd thing for a bat to be that size, but that's who the night god is. And when the night god once a month hears them ring that bell, it knows that it's going to get some food and so it comes over to the temple to get its meal, which is a sacrifice that these cultists are providing to their night god. And they do mention in the story that none of the red-robed men, not even Haji, have ever seen the night god because the ritual is always done in the dark 
because a bat would probably not come to get food if if there was a lot of light coming out of the building that might blind it because it's a it's a nocturnal creature and once i kind of realized that that was that's what was going on it made me wonder how all of this the whole church and everything came to be in the first place i mean were there like a bunch of people at least two people walking around at night in this open lot in the middle of Shadazar, and one of them, for some reason, decided to start ringing a bell. And this giant bat who lived in the area heard the ringing of the bell and came to investigate and swooped down, carried off one of the people to eat. And then the other one assumed, you know, it was dark. They didn't see what took their companion and just assumed, oh, it must have been a god of some sort. And I must worship this god. So I'm going to build a temple right here in this empty lot and start sacrificing people to this God. And when I start thinking of stuff like this, I like to start kind of creating my own backstory. So here's what I came up with. Haji was one of these two people. It was her and her husband and her husband abused her. He beat her, he drank and abuse her and knock her around. And maybe he dragged her into this empty lot to start beating on her or something. And Maybe he took a swing at her and there was a bell hanging on a wall and he hit a bell or for some reason a bell started ringing and that's when the bat came and it carried her husband away. And she at the time, you know, as she's being hurt, she's praying to to any of the gods out there to come and help her. And so when this giant bat comes and takes this guy away, she's like, yay, this, the night God, that's who that was. I'm going to make them up right now and I'm going to start a church around this night god because they the, the night god saved me from my evil husband. And so that's what she did. But maybe at first when she would come up with sacrifices when she started gathering loyal fanatics and whatnot, maybe they were sacrificing criminals, bad people. Maybe they were snatching thieves off the street and whatnot. And then eventually it they they decided it was just too difficult to try to narrow their focus to criminals, bad folks. And so they just, they started taking women because you know what? Nothing makes a sacrifice to a God like a woman. That's what, uh, that's what cultists do. The last thing I think I want to mention here in this issue, as I'm looking through it, Conan loses consciousness at least three times in this story. The first time when the red robe guys came up behind him and cracked him on the back of the head a couple of times. And then he loses consciousness for a few moments when the bat crashes to the ground and then finally loses consciousness again when Jenna kills Haji. And actually, she's kind of almost lulling him to sleep because he wakes to find that she's killed Jenna. She says, I'm not quite as frail as you might suspect, dear Conan. One cannot be and still survive the dark dens of Shadazar. But then she tells him, do not speak now. You're hurt badly. Close your eyes. Dream golden dreams. And then she says, do you hear me, my love? I said, sleep, sleep, sleep. And kind of lulls him, almost hypnotizing him back to sleep. And then he wakes up, finds that she's gone, finds that all of his gold is gone. He just says that uh, the heart of gold is gone, which makes me assume based on his reaction here, because he says that she's left. She did not leave empty handed. The heart of gold easier to carry, she said, which 
leads me to believe that all of his gold was melted down and made into this heart of gold. And maybe she had planned on stealing it from him before she got kidnapped. I feel like that was her plan all along. But Conan, instead of going, oh, hell no, and going back into Shadazar and getting his money back, he's like, eh, whatever. I'm, I'm done with this place. And then he gets to Steppen, moving on to his next adventure. We didn't have time. The art in this issue was quite enjoyable. We're back to Sal Buscema on the inks, which means that once again, we can really see that Barry Windsor Smith of 1986 in this issue. I think this is more of that Barry Windsor Smith that, than, than we have seen previously. It's really, really starting to come out. I'm not a big fan of the way he draws Conan's hair. I don't know. There's something about it that just doesn't really do anything for me, but I can live with it. And I'm not sure why I haven't talked about this before, but Barry Windsor Smith's Conan is a much leaner Conan than I'm used to. If, if you've read the John Buscema stories, he's kind of a bigger, muscly dude. Not that he's not muscly. He's very toned in these issues. And I don't know if that's done on purpose, if that's supposed to show us that Conan at this point is still quite young, 17, 18 years old. And so he's not as big and muscly as he will be. But I feel like the, the Robert E. Howard stories that I've been listening to, those that, are, that take place when he was a youth around this time, he is described as being fairly big and muscly. But Barry Windsor Smith does not do that. And I'm not, I'm not 100% sure why. I don't know if the bodybuilder thing just wasn't something that they looked at as, oh, that's obviously what Conan would look like. And I know that in future issues, like when Dark Horse gets the book, and they have various artists on the Dark Horse book, he's not drawn like a big bulky bodybuilder in some of those stories as well. It just really depends on, on the artist. But the way I've always pictured him, and maybe a lot of that is blamed on the fact that I was introduced to Conan through the second of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, Conan the Destroyer. Maybe that's just who I always kind of pictured Conan as, as a big bodybuilder type. And then, of course, the comics that I first read in the 80s were the John Buscema comics. So that's how I, that's how I imagine him when I'm reading the stories, the, the Robert E. Howard stories. And that's not really what Barry Windsor Smith does. Not that I don't like his Conan, I do. And frankly, again, I'm really glad that they got rid of the helmet. So. Now they just need to get rid of the big medallions he wears around his neck and the fur trunks and start putting him in some different clothes. And we'll see when they start doing that. But normally this is the point in the show where I do some listener feedback, but I don't have any listener feedback. So instead, I'm going to give you what did I learn from Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume one, that I didn't know before. So again, since I didn't know that this book existed until I'd already read the first five issues of the comic, and of course I'd already recorded and released episodes about them, I thought I'd just go through real quick and talk about the various things I've learned about issues one through five from the book that I didn't know at the time that I recorded the episodes. I'm not going to go through all five here in this episode. I'm going to just give you just give you a couple things here, and then maybe. 
as we continue on with future episodes, I'll talk about some other stuff. But one thing I didn't know is that other artists for Conan were considered before Barry Windsor Smith. I knew, and we talked about it in the episode, I think it's an episode zero, Star the Slayer or Thongor. I talked about how John Buscema was the artist that Roy Thomas wanted for Conan, but because Martin Goodman, the publisher, didn't want to spend a lot of money on this book because he didn't know how well it was going to do. They had to go with the cheaper artist. And so Barry Windsor Smith, who had done a few things, he had he'd done some some issues here and there for Marvel. He was but he was still a, a relatively new guy, so he was much cheaper. And so that's who they tasked for issue one. But they had also considered Gil Kane at one point, who was a big Conan fan. But while his page rates weren't as high as Buscema, he was still too expensive. Stan Lee suggested both Don Heck or Dick Ayers. And Thomas didn't feel that either one was right for Conan. And so basically Stan said, well, you better find somebody. Otherwise, it's going to be one of those two. Roy suggested Bernie Wrightson, who was also a fairly new artist at the time. But Stan was less enthusiastic about Bernie. And so it ended up being Barry Windsor Smith, who was from England. He had come to America looking for comic book work, but he didn't have a green card. And so he was booted back to England and had to do Conan by mail. I don't know how long that went on, but at least for the first couple of issues, he had to have Roy mail him the script or the synopsis and then drew out all the pages and then mailed them back to New York, which nowadays that's not a big deal. You can do it all by computer now and scan the art if you're doing physical artwork or you can do the art digitally. and. But, but back then, doing it by mail, it just seems like it might take a while. I also learned that issue number one, The Coming of Conan, was retold in Savage Sword of Conan, number 222, nearly 30 years later, in April of 1994. And that was written by Roy Thomas, and it was drawn by John Buscema. And Buscema used the very same three-page synopsis that Roy had originally written and sent to Barry Windsor Smith back in 1970. Unfortunately, I don't have a copy of that, so I haven't had a chance to read it. I also learned that Stan and Roy, and even Barry Windsor Smith himself, did not feel that Barry's art on issue number one was all that great. Barry felt that he had frozen up and had taken a creative step backwards with that issue. And in fact, it had been decided that if the art for issue number two wasn't improved, Stan and Roy would find a new artist. But luckily for them and all of us, issue number two was much more improved. Speaking of issue number two, Lair of the Beast Men, I learned that uh, while it is an original Roy Thomas story, it was actually based on two paragraphs in Robert E. Howard's essay, The Hyborian Age, which we have talked about, I think, in that episode zero. We may have talked about it in issue one, but there's two paragraphs. They're not consecutive that gave Roy the idea for the Beast Men. The first paragraph says, at the time of the cataclysm, a band of savages whose development was not much above that of the Neanderthal fled to the north to escape destruction. They found the snow countries inhabited only by a species of ferocious snow apes, huge shaggy white animals apparently native to that climate. 
These they fought and drove beyond the Arctic Circle to perish as the savages thought. But then a little later in the essay, it says, 2,000 years later, a wanderer into the far north returned with the news that the supposedly deserted ice wastes were inhabited by an extensive tribe of ape-like men, descended, he swore, from the beasts driven out of the more habitable land by the ancestors of the Hyborians. He urged that a large war party be sent beyond the Arctic Circle to exterminate these beasts whom he swore were evolving into true men. A small band of adventurous young warriors followed him into the north and none returned. I also learned from issue number two that Barry Windsor Smith had drawn the underground city as a much more advanced society than what Roy had wanted. He, he, he wanted the Beastmen to still be a bit more primitive than civilized men, but that's not the way Barry ended up drawing it. And then I learned that the original splash page of issue number two that has Conan crouching over the body of a dead beast man, it, it originally showed Conan crouching over the body of a dead bear. And in that original splash page, he was not wearing that fur cloak. By the second page, he is wearing the fur cloak. And in the story, we learn that he got that from the bear. He skinned the bear and made a cloak. Martin Goodman, however, the publisher, he didn't like that. He didn't, he didn't want a dead bear on the first page. He thought that was pretty lame. He wanted it to be a dead ape man, which Roy didn't agree with. He thought the story would be rather anticlimactic if from page one, it shows that Conan can kill one of these beast men, but Goodman got his way. The splash page was redrawn. And then Thomas had to come up with a reason for why Conan killed the beast man in the first place or how he came even came across it and how he got the cloak, which is why all of that happens off screen. But that's it. That's all I'm going to give you for now. We'll see what might pop up in a future episode. Speaking of which, join me back here, folks, next time as we look at Conan the Barbarian, issue number seven, The Lurker Within. Bye. Hither Came Conan is a Stephen or Else production. Find more podcasts at stephenorelse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to stephenorelse at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at stephenorelse. And join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. Booty in hand, Conan suddenly craves a flagon of wine. Booty in hand, booty, 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 booty. 
Booty in hand, cut by tying. She reaches up, removes the helmet from atop's Conan. She reaches up, removes the helmet. She reaches up, reaches, reaches, and time for change. It's time to rearrange. That's who I feel like when I my my voice cracks. Peter Brady, Brady Bunch. If you guys haven't seen that episode, good God, what's wrong with you? <sighs> On with the show. <laughs> Maldives can boom 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 fart fart. I think I'm gonna try that one again, folks. While I'm doing that, take a drink, take a drink, everybody. Mm-mm, take a drink. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take a drink. Of course, I'm drinking water because uh never did acquire the taste for that alcohol. Oh yeah, darling, that's good stuff. That water straight from the bottle. Eventually, finding the red robe fanatics gathered around a dais in the great chamber where the roof farts on top of people's heads. Standing next to a glozing, 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 and inflared. Okay, having a tough time with this one today, folks. I'm going to take another drink. Take a drink, folks. There's time in the show where you take a drink, even though this ain't going to show up till the end. Um, water is the sustenance of life that makes me want to sing and dance. The red robe thub, the jabs of sub, the red robe thugs, despite the darkness, play a game of pinochle. I don't know why. That's just, that's what they're doing. I don't even know what pinochle is. I think it's a card game. Conan can see nothing in the now Moon River, singing from the trees. I don't, I don't know the words to that one. Conan can see nothing in the now, 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 why do I keep saying now? It's night, you dope. Conan tells Haji to command the bat, the bat, bat. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Then the hell with you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc